have so for the last 35 minutes or so uh, we have some time for some discussion or questions and answers um, so please uh, feel free if anyone uh, would like to ask or Asking about the meta meditation. I'm not sure that I'm not. Oh, that's it. Okay. Um, <clears throat> um, as, as regards um, the um, penetration, the comprehension of the nature of suffering. Um, we, we can we can see that only the happy mind is really capable and strong enough to do that. If you're really miserable, you can't understand suffering. You just suffer. So it's the happy mind that can understand the nature of, of suffering. And the uh, metta meditation is um, a method, a very simple, straightforward accessible method of um, making yourself happy because uh, wishing others happy makes you happy um, so that that's that's the link but the um, it, it's more I, I think uh, more more accurate to, to say wishing others well in the sense that I, I think most people have this reservation about it. What about, you know, somebody who's really nasty and, and immoral and, you know, how can you, how can you wish them to be happy? You know, it just doesn't seem possible to do that. Why would you do it? Um, the, um, the metta meditation in such a case uh, would be that you, you, um, you look at what is it particularly in that person's conduct or that person's personality which is so objectionable. Let's say that person's very selfish or aggressive, let's say. So in that case, you they may that person know the happiness of freedom from selfishness. Could that person know the happiness of unselfishness? Or could that uh, may that person uh, under, uh, realize the freedom of um, kindness and and to let go of aggression. So rather than being an, an obstacle 
to spreading metta to someone. That's your, your particular focus. So if, if you're just doing this, sort of, may everyone be happy, it, it becomes, um, you know, kind of robotic and, and um, it tends to become more like a mantra after a while. So you have to find ways of freshening it up and making it more more specific. Um, like it's really good, uh, really fun thing to do in in airports or or where you're sitting somewhere and you've got a long wait and you see people going and you try to think what good thing could you wish that person? Um, there's some specific thing. Uh, so if someone you know someone's walking with a limp or they're or they're overweight, or then you, you wish them can, uh, can they be free of pain in their legs, or you know, can they be free of the discomfort of being overweight, or and and so it's it's a really um, fun and and uplifting thing to do in those kind of times where where you know you're sitting around and nothing nothing to do, and sitting on a bus, on a train, in an airport, in a bus station, um, it's um, it's something that you know you don't need. Um, to go to a particular place um, to practice, um, and it just feels so good, you know. And um, there's, um, you, you may have heard of a well well known um, Buddhist teacher called uh, Mante Gunaratana, who who lives in uh, his monasteries in in West Virginia, and um, he he was relating how this is his practice when he he does a lot of traveling teaching. Um, and when he um, he was sitting in an airport once, and he just closed sits sits closed his eyes and does his metta meditation, and then he, he felt something kind of, and he opened his eyes, and this little girl had climbed on his on his lap and was was hugging him, you know, um, and he was kind of like bit, you know, <laughs> um, and then uh, the mother came along and she's telling the daughter. Time to go. Time to you know we got to get on the plane, and she wouldn't let go of him. You know, and uh, so it's um, yeah, it's a beautiful thing to do. It makes you happy, and it does uh, affect the the atmosphere around you. And there's there's a very um, I think profound connection um, between fear and aggression that aggressive people will feel a lot of fear because because they're aggressive to others, then they assume that other people are going to be aggressive towards them and so feel unsafe. <clears throat> so through practice of, of loving kindness, then you, you deal with that, you feel safe. You know, it's not to the extent you, you know, you're, you're heedless or you're um, not taking care of yourself, but it, it takes away that that sense of um, alienation and loneliness and and you know all this kind of people uh, negative energies around you. Um, and the Buddha Buddha said the one who develops metta meditation is beloved of humans, good humans, um, and beloved of of the unseen beings as well. So it, it is in you know from the most mundane physical sense it is a protection for you as well. Yeah.
discursive. Yeah, sorry, that's a kind of a technical term. Yeah, this, what exactly is the question? Like the difference between the discursive and non discursive meditation. So, what's so other people can hear? She's asking, what is the difference between meditation with the discursive mind, which means thinking, and the non discursive mind, which means no thinking? <laughs> Yeah, so I'm sorry if I wasn't clear enough with that. The, the point I was trying to make is that the meditation on the breath, particularly at the, the point of the nose, is quite a subtle meditation object. And I think that many people become very frustrated with it or discouraged with meditation because they, they try to meditate on that point straight away. Um, and often you need to have some preparation um, so it's like you have to like massage, you just like or warm up in some way before the, the mindfulness is strong enough to be able to benefit from that kind of meditation. So one one technique that I, I taught just now in the meditation is just this more kind of uh, relaxed um, going through the body. So you're gradually sort of becoming um, um, accustomed to being with the breath in a more relaxed way, and then you gradually focus down to one spot. But the other way is to begin the meditation with some, like a thinking meditation. So you can go through the 32 parts of the body, or you could um, do some uh, reflection on, on death or some particular teaching. So it means that sometimes you feel, you know, there's just... If you try to stop your mind and just go with your breath, it's just, it won't do it. It's just too much. It's just going against the flow too much. So you say, okay, you want to think, but you have to think in the way I tell you to think, just about this particular topic. So it's rather than meditation on a, on a sensation or a theme or a, or a point, it's a meditation on a, on a theme, on a, on a, a topic of, of um, Dhamma. And then what happens is that after a while, your mind just gets, it does, it's had enough, it gets bored. You know, it's like, I want to just be quiet now. So you put it down, the thinking down in a very, like, voluntary, relaxed way because you want to. Not because you think, now it's time to meditate, I've got to stop. There's a one part of you still wants to think, and then one part wants to meditate, and you have this kind of conflict. <clears throat> Yeah, that, that's another that's another option. You see, the the point is how how can you persuade your mind to be with this sensation of the breath? So um, 
if you if you have developed this already or you have some barami, maybe it's quite easy that the mind just goes with the will stay with the breath. But um, one way of uh, teaching the mind to be with the breath, just giving it an extra little job to do, is you use uh, like a putto on the in breath. Put you could use any word. I mean, putto is is especially profound for for a Buddhist. Um, it's it's better to stick with. I mean, it's not hard and and fast, but it, it's better to stick with one word, and then it becomes um, like natural to you to do that. But to remember that butto is 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 just a um, uh, a skillful means, a technique to uh, persuade your mind to stay with the breath, and then after a while, if you keep doing it then you don't need the butto anymore, okay? It depends. If your mind won't stay with the breath, just with the sensation, then you try butto. Is that a good way for you? Um, and yeah, yeah, butto is easier to stay with the breath, and butto is good for you. But what will happen is if after a while, then if the mindfulness is strong enough, then the the butto feels like too coarse, um, and the mind just puts it down and just goes to the sensation. So what you you want the um, clear awareness of the sensation, but if you can't sustain the clear awareness of the sensation, you can use a word like butto, or you can use counting, or some other method, just to teach the mind how to be with the breath without wandering off somewhere else. Yeah. <clears throat> well, it, it, it's quite a coarse... This, this, it, and the mind, you see, the practice of meditation, your mind is becoming more subtle. So the more coarse things just get left behind. So after a while, you, your mind doesn't need the butto anymore. Yeah. It, it it depends, you know. It, the the idea is how can you be mindful, aware, bright, present with the breath? Um, if you are developed enough that you can be with the sensation, then that's great. That's that's best. But if it's still still a little difficult then you can use some other technique to help, like counting the breaths or using a mantra like butto. Um, so this is the preliminary practice. Then after a certain time, mindfulness becomes very strong. It doesn't need the word anymore. Uh -huh. Which monk? <laughs> uh, I know some really miserable monks. <laughs> uh. <clears throat> Yeah, asking uh, are monks the happiest people in the world? Um, uh, 
Well, happiness, um, there's many different levels of happiness, of course, but the, um, let's say the most um, stable and, and uh, let, let's say we can evaluate quality of happiness uh, by how conditioned it is. So if you have a happiness which is depends on so many different things, it's very weak and unreliable happiness. Okay, if it's dependent on something outside yourself, you, which you can't control, then, then it's always unstable. Um, so the highest kind of happiness is one which is not dependent on some external uh, stimulus or condition. It's present all the time. Um, and that's only um, possible when the mind is free of defilements. Okay? Defilements or the gilet. Okay? So it's not um, uh, a matter of being a, a monk or a nun or a lay person. The happiness is a function of how much defilement you have in, in your heart. So if a very well-practiced layperson who is able to let go of the defilement, then they can be as happy or more happy than, than a monk who hasn't done that. Um, <clears throat> but the um, earlier when in the talk, I was talking about this, uh, like education or cultivation, all these areas of your life. And th these are ways of, of increasing happiness in your life. If you're not looking after your body, if you're not eating properly, you're not exercising properly, you're not sleeping properly, you're not going to be very happy. If you have a dysfunctional relationship with your, uh, your telephone or your iPad or your computer, you're not going to be very happy. Um, you're going to be just strung out with too much information. Um, if you don't know um, how to live harmoniously with your family and the people around you, you're not going to be happy. Um, so Buddhism is really, we're, we're really interested. You know, it, it's, it's incredible to me that, you know, uh, that surely the one thing that unifies everybody in the world, you know, whatever, uh, relate, whatever um, uh, race, whatever religion or no religion, you know, everybody wants to be happy. But yet, how, how many uh, educational institutes even ever talk about this? You know, how, may, how many, you know, degree courses are there in, you know, the way towards happiness or the way to deal with unhappiness? So it's, it, it's, it's so normal. We don't just take it for granted. But the thing that's the most important thing in life happiness and suffering is something that you can study. You can go all the way to PhD You start off in preschool and go all the way to PhD and never even really thought about it. You know, it's, it's a huge sort of black uh, hole, blind spot. So this is what Buddhism's really about. What is happiness? What is suffering? You know, um, how can we be free of suffering? How can we experience more happiness? These are the really important questions that, you know, we have to um, ask ourselves. So I think that one of the things that distinguishes Buddhism, for me at least, and as me as a teacher, is I see my role as encouraging people to ask good questions about their life, 
rather than me. I'm, I'm the one who knows all about Buddhism and I'm going to tell you. You know, I, I think that we have within us the wisdom and the ability to, to ask these questions and find good answers, but we're not encouraged enough to do that in, in our society. The research also shows that to be happy, you need to be married. <laughs> <laughs> so don't believe the research. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's research and research, isn't there? Yeah. Sorry, what do you like? Yeah, that, that's what we call Vipawa Tanha. Can we repeat the question? So the, go ahead. Okay. He's asking about the defilements. And when you, <laughs> when you have defilements, he says he gets angry towards them. So that's another defilement. So he's asking how to deal, how to observe the defilements. <clears throat> so so um, in terms of the, the structure I gave at the beginning of the talk, the main emphasis is on protecting the mind from defilement and then dealing effectively with the defilement. Suffering is something to be comprehended, but the cause of suffering is something to be abandoned. Um, so defilement is something that you're doing. It's not something that's happened to you. You're doing it. There's an element of intention there. Um, and so um, if the immediate reaction to defilement is this is bad i don't want this i'm i'm trying to be a good person and this is, and so on and there's this sense of ownership there you're coming from the point of view i am somebody with defilement i don't want defilement so it's coming from a sense of self an idea of self um but um simply recognizing the presence of um, defilement and not uh, indulging in it, not following it, then it's, uh, it's unable to, to develop any further because you're not adding any more fuel to the fire. But in, in, a, in a situation, um, let's say where you, you're angry with somebody, you know, then um, before you get really angry with somebody, you know, there are all kinds of um, early warning signs. So certain kind of tension may be in your arms or your legs and, and you have, and it, that's one part of practice just to, um, develop this kind of like a database of early warning signals that you're some defilements on the way, um, so that you can deal with it while it's still very weak. Um, but then, um, in the case that, you know, okay, you've lost it and you're angry, then, it's a matter of you need um, like a whole toolbox of uh, techniques and methods and having that fluency to be able to choose the right, the right tool because it's not just one way uh, of dealing with it. 
sometimes it might be you're, you're so angry. Maybe the best thing to do is just say, look, excuse me. I, I'm just, um, you know, I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm just feeling really upset right now. I just need to take five minutes. Um, other times you might be, you know, just to develop this, I think with very strong negative emotions, the way to go is mindfulness of the physical sensation at that time, not, not going into the thought, thought patterns. It's too, it's too much. So just be aware of the energy in your body. So, and, and then that's a way of neutralizing it because you just see it. It's just, this just energy. Uh, and then relaxing the energy in the body uh, relaxes the mental proliferation. So that, that might be um, a valid and practical means of dealing with it. Or if you're in a, in a meeting and you notice you're starting to get very negative, it might be the metta meditation. So you need to develop very, you know, a number of different um, techniques um, and, and developing that kind of facility and, and, and um, skill in dealing with things as they come up. There's not like just one, one way of doing it. Did I? Oh, excuse me. Uh, yes, there's three kinds of craving. So there's like sensual craving, and there's the craving to become, to be. So, and then there's the craving to get rid of. So that immediate thing, I don't want this, I don't need this in my life, go away. That, that's, we're power tanhar, and it actually makes it worse. As a, you know, you, uh, so there's that grasping onto it and identifying with it, and this is the pushing away. It. And so that recognition and not allowing the mind to, to go either way and just to putting, putting it down is the way to go. Trauma. Yeah, um, this question is about trauma and dealing with trauma. And I, I think it's a, it's a good point because we, we constantly need to remind ourselves that meditation is not a panacea. You know, it's not a kind of a Buddhist answer to everything. Um, and that's a, that's a good case um, in point. Many years ago, 20-something years ago, I was in um, Massachusetts. I went to Laos, Massachusetts, where there's like 20,000 Cambodian, at that time, probably a lot more now, a number of Cambodian temples there. And the, the abbot of one of the temples, and he was quite a well-known meditation master, and I asked him, I said, you've these people completely traumatized by their experiences in Cambodia and the Khmer Rouge and... How, what do you teach? How do you, how do you teach meditation? And he said, oh, that's a long time in the future. What I'm teaching them now is generosity, kindness, sila. Um, and so this is how you, you build up that base to the extent where you have enough, you know, uh, sense, I use that sort of technical term, positive regard. It's a sense of well-being and safety 
that then you can um, apply those kind of meditation techniques. Um, but I, I think generally without doing too much formal meditation, just uh, acts of kindness, doing things for others, just enjoy, you know, enjoying that sense of um, helping others to be well or freeing others from suffering. And he'd have people coming into the monastery and cutting the grass and doing odd jobs and just feeling they're doing something really constructive and good and, and just sort of uh, getting back to, uh, to some kind of normality. So I don't think that, uh, you know, there's um, that getting people who've been traumatized to go on meditation retreats is, is a good idea at all. It's probably a bad idea. Yeah. Great job. So the question is uh, <coughs> how do you get enlightened in one lifetime? Uh, especially if you have a job. <laughs> yeah. Um, this uh, <clears throat> question is about, like, um, is there any inherent conflict between social activism um, and spiritual path liberation? Um, I, um, my, my view would be it's... it's um, the question is not really um, well uh, well founded. It's more <clears throat> um, the attitude um, with which you um, apply yourself to whatever uh, task you have in the world, whatever um, livelihood uh, you might have. Uh, the <clears throat> and each any kind of livelihood you know has certain. Pros and cons, advantages and disadvantages, and the um, particular uh, disadvantages or challenges with social activism is, you know, tending to get into that us and them mind state. You know, um, they're the the bad guys or the um, the ones who are um, destroying the society and, and so on and so forth. And, and you know, we're this uh, valiant band of good-hearted people uh, fighting against the juggernaut. And so that kind of uh, heroic us and them um, kind of um, mindset, uh, it's quite understandable. And it gives you a certain kind of, <laughs> excuse me, energy. But as long as you're seeing things in terms of, uh, you know, us and them, uh, then uh, you're going to, uh, experience real difficulties in in spiritual life, but I <coughs> um, <clears throat> from the time of the the Buddha, lay people um, leading good lives in society, um, even um, married children um, have realized 
the first, second, third level of enlightenment, um, most commonly the first level of Sotapanna. Um, I think it's, it's, it's extremely difficult to, to reach the Arahant level and the, as a lay person. But if you reach the Sotapanna level, I mean, that's, you know, that's pretty good already. Um, Okay, this is a, a question about um, trying to practice and living in the world and and uh, all kinds of excuse me temptations and and something like just um, being enduring, 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 and, and sometimes being successful, sometimes not, and some advice on that. So, in any any uh, practice, you always have to cover the area of conduct, the area of the, the heart, and the area of wisdom, sila, samadhi, banya. So in dealing with um, kinds of temptations and, and, and challenges and so on, first area is sila and, uh, develop and um, establishing um, certain guidelines for yourself that you take on and you doesn't have to be exactly the five precepts. You can make some your own special precept as, as a guide for, for your life. So you have to be working on that level, on the sila level. Then on the samadhi level, you have to be uh, constantly working in recognizing and letting go of the defilements that cause you to indulge in the, in the temptation and also to be uh, strengthening and cultivating the positive qualities that, that oppose the negative quality. And thirdly, and most importantly, is wisdom and understanding. You know, it's like if I say to you, this, this is so delicious. This is the most delicious uh, drink in the world, but don't have any of it. I'm going to leave it here, but you just don't take any, okay? You know, and that's that's difficult, isn't it? You know, it's um, and and maybe sometimes you and I'm just going to leave it here, and you can come any time and take it, and no one's going to tell you. No, it's not against the law. It's not. I've told everyone if she wants to take this, she can take it. Okay, so you know you've got this constant kind of temptation. So as long as you believe that that's really super delicious, you know, you can never really let go of it. Sometimes you can be really strong, but other times maybe, you know, you're feeling a bit tired and you think, yeah, I really deserve that. I've had a hard day and, you know, just a little bit, you know. Um, but then if you find out that actually this is poison, you know, it tastes good, but if you drink it, you die, you know, then you don't want to drink it anymore. 
and that, that's just the wisdom. You know, it's, it, as long as it's just the, like the samadhi, it's this, oh, this incredible thing. You know, I, I've got to be a good boy or a good girl. I'm not going to do it. You know, just, you know, don't do it, don't do it. And you're constant, you know, fighting between one side and the other side. But, but then when you have the wisdom, say this thing that you think is going to do it for you, is going to make you happy, is going to answer all your problems, it doesn't. It's not what you think it is. Um, then there's no struggle anymore. You know, the struggle is there because you're, you're, you're imagining or your, un, your understanding is that this is something which is going to take away all your pain and all your suffering and you're going to live happily ever after or whatever. So this is why you need, you know, all three areas in the conduct and the, the samadhi, developing the strong mind, but also you need this um, re- reflective investigation uh, to see whether what it is, this temptation is really what, what it is that you think it is, or why is it? Why why is it so important to you? What do you think you'll get from it? Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, um, did, did you all hear that? That being monks, yeah. <coughs> well, um, firstly, I think it's good just to, you know, um, have certain days, certain times of the day where you turn everything off. You know, uh, turn off your telephone, turn off your TV, turn off you know, for an hour a day or something like that. Having times when you go up country, you come out of the city and you leave all that, all that stuff behind you. Just come out and be with the nature. So having um, certain periods where you, you are removed from that, and <clears throat> one, it's just refreshing and relaxing in itself. But secondly, it gives you that ability to compare and say, wow, you know, I'm really stressed out with all this stuff. This is really spinning my mind out. So you, you get some wisdom and understanding from being in a place every now and again, or a regular interval where you're not faced with all that. Um, I think it's really, I like to um, just uh, look at advertisements and try and work out what it is that they're, you know, how they're trying to manipulate you. It's just a really good game to play if you're in a traffic jam or something. You know what? You know what? What is it? What? What? What kind of button are they trying to press? And 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 that that developing that is a, you know just being aware of someone. You know someone is out there is trying to press a button. You know and is it say yeah I'm not going to let them do that. Why should I? You know and um, so the <clears throat> the more you develop the mindfulness, you're developing meditation and and just slowing down a bit and simplifying your life where you can, then I think you start to develop a, you know, a better sense of how much, to what extent, you know, you want to engage with all that stuff and everyone's situation and, and, um, uh, is different and, you know, the responsibilities you have and, and so on and so forth. It's not a matter of being a monk in the sense of there's certain basic principles, you know, of, 
of having times of removing yourself from all this, um, a sense of sense restraint, um, a sense of observing what things do to your mind and and trying to take care of your mind more, um, simplifying the life wherever you can. So these are the things that are taken to their kind of, um, you know, their best possible level in a monastic environment. But you can adapt them, you know, in a, on a certain level uh, in your own life, you know, as best as best you can. So you can learn from uh, what monks are doing. You know, monks are sort of like the the professionals. You know, they're, we're living in a in a environment or a way of life which was set up specifically by the Buddha himself to be most conducive to practice. Um, but then, if you can see certain elements of monastic life that you can adapt, you know, on a, on a level that's appropriate to your own life, then I think that's that's the best way.